Morning, saints. Before we open the word, let's let's pray. Father, we praise you for your boundless love this morning, and we we are so thankful for your fathomless grace, and we are, we are overwhelmed, Lord, that we are recipients of your kindness. We are grateful to be here together this morning, all, all of us in one room. We, we thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us and granting us patience to get to this day. We pray, Father, that as we open the word together, that we would that we would do so with an awareness that our entire body is able to do this in one place. We praise you for that. We ask, Lord, that it would be rich and and wonderful, and that we would do this as as an act of worship to you. We confess to you, Lord, that our minds and hearts may have come here this morning a bit distracted by other things. And we, we confess to you that we need your help. We need your help to lay those things aside and to focus completely on who you are and what you have to say to us. We, we pray, Father, that you would grant us to understand what we find in the word this morning and what it means to our lives. We ask that what we see here would light a fire in our hearts, that we would grow in affection for Jesus that we would all the more diligently follow him in discipleship. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Our text will extend from verse 30 to verse 44. So as you're finding your place there, let's stand together and we'll read, we'll read that whole narrative before we begin to consider it together. Mark 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus... And told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, He saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. 
And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. You may be seated. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. I wonder how many of us have, have ever been called to serve the Lord in a capacity that so overwhelmed us that we felt completely unequal to the task. Lord, I, I just can't do this. Can, can anybody identify with that? I'm raising my hand. On the, on the opposite end of that spectrum, we, we all also may have had times where we were so underwhelmed by the ways that the Lord was asking us to serve, that the work seemed completely meaningless. Lord, I I just want to do something significant. Can anybody identify with that? I'm raising my hand. Both Both of those extremes can sabotage the meaningfulness of our work and the fellowship that can be enjoyed with Jesus in that work. And again, that first extreme is to be so overwhelmed by what God asks of us that we don't even attempt it. The other extreme is to be so underwhelmed by what He asks that we miss the wonder of what He is actually doing through us. Both of those extremes are failures to focus on His Identity. They are failures to focus on his identity. Is central to this narrative, and it is central to our disciples. This this narrative shows us who Christ is, and his that his identity has ramifications for how we function as disciples. So, primary in the text is Jesus' identity. And then flowing from that is that his identity has, a, has meaning for our calling as disciples. And when we have our eyes firmly set on the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, then, then whatever he asks us to do will be regarded as a doable privilege. Now, the, the big idea this morning and, and the first truth that we'll glean from the narrative is that Jesus is Yahweh, the good shepherd. Yahweh, the good shepherd. Now, this story that we've just read, verses 30 through 44, it's like Old Testament connections are us. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to look for another narrative in the Gospels where there are more densely packed connections to the Old Testament pointing toward Jesus, saying, Jesus is Yahweh. Now, before we get into these verses, I want to set you up to see a couple of these connections. 
So I'm going to ask you to turn back to the Old Testament with me to Numbers chapter 27. Numbers 27. In Numbers 27, we find the people of Israel. This is toward the end of the wilderness period. The generation of Israelites who who blew it and were doomed to die in the wilderness. They're almost all gone now. And it's about time for that that next generation to go into the land of promise. So we want to pick up reading in Numbers 27, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, When the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. So stop right there for a second. So the scene is God wants to show Moses the land of promise, but he's reminding Moses that Moses is not going to be the shepherd that leads them into the land of promise. And he's reminding Moses why. Moses lost his cool with the people. You remember this? When he struck the the, the rock at the waters of Meribah? So Moses is not going to bring the people into the land. Now, if you're taking notes, you might want to write down Psalm 95. Psalm 95. Toward the end of that psalm, about the latter half, the author recalls for us the incident that the Lord refers to at the waters of Meribah when the people hardened their hearts against God. And the last verse of Psalm 95 reads this way. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. That first generation of people in the wilderness, they will not go into the land of Canaan. So that's how God characterizes the people entering Canaan. He calls it entering His rest. So that wilderness generation, they're not going to enter God's rest. And Moses... The shepherd, he is not going to be the shepherd that leads God's people into his rest. So who is going to be that shepherd? But Moses Moses has that on his mind. Let's continue in verse 15. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of of the people of Israel may obey." If we move forward a bit in the history of Israel, we find the the book of Joshua recording Joshua bringing the people into the land. And so we we might think, fantastic, Joshua is that shepherd who brings God people, God's people, into God's rest. So now they're they're not going to be a a people. They're not going to be a sheep without a shepherd. But not so fast. Because the continuing narrative of the Old Testament records that they are still people who go astray in their hearts. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We have all 
We are, we are all like sheep. We've gone astray. And so we find in, in 1 Kings 22, for example, 1 Kings 22, long after Joshua brought the people into the land of Canaan, a prophet named Micaiah saying this, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountain as sheep that have no shepherd. In other words, after they entered the land, they were sheep without a shepherd. Prophets also talk about this. Zechariah in his 10th chapter, again, long after Joshua brought the people into the land, Zechariah recorded, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Now, it's not that the people have had no leaders, no shepherds at all. It's just that those leaders have consistently been self-centered jerks. So, what, what's the answer then? How are God's people ever going to be sheep with a shepherd? We'll turn now to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. There we find the solution to that, that, that problem of the people. That they're like sheep without a shepherd. And, and none of the, the shepherds that, that have come along, these human leaders, none of them, been able to lead the people effectively, to take care of the people. Ezekiel 34, verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And, and I will bring them out from all the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my, peop- of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh. It's just like what David wrote in Psalm 23. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want... He makes me lie down in green pastures. In other words, Yahweh will give me rest. Now the shepherd, the shepherd that Moses prayed for in Numbers 27 may have been pictured by Joshua. And the rest that God promised may have been pictured by the land of Canaan. But at the close of the Old Testament, there is still a better shepherd coming, Yahweh Himself, and a better rest coming in Himself. Okay, Now, Mark chapter 6. We can go back to Mark 6 now. The disciples, they have come back from this missionary journey that we, that we saw last time. In verse 30, they come back. Jesus says in verse 31, come away by yourselves to a desolate place or a wilderness, and rest a while. That's important enough that Mark mentions it twice. He's bringing them to a place of rest. But verse 33, many saw them going, recognized them, 
and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Now that speaks, that speaks of just how desperate these people are for the kind of person that Jesus is. I mean, they're desperate to get there. They're so motivated that they ran around the sea faster than Jesus and the disciples sail across it. That's how badly they need Him. And when Jesus saw the great crowd, He had compassion on them because they were like what? They were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, obviously, because we've just seen what we've seen in the Old Testament, Mark is not coming up with a phrase, just coming up with a phrase to describe Jesus' frame of mind, but rather he is bringing the Old Testament to bear on the identity of Jesus. And he's, he's showing us here that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the good shepherd of Ezekiel 34 and Psalm 23. Because what does Jesus start to do for the sheep without a shepherd? What does he start to do? He starts to do exactly what Yahweh said he would do in Ezekiel 30, 34. Ezekiel 34, twice, he says explicitly, I will feed my sheep, and look at what we read at the end of Mark 6.34. It says that he began to teach them many things. Now, Jesus is already feeding his people. There, there are numerous references in the Old Testament likening the intake of God's Word to eating. Let me, let me give you just a few of these. Jeremiah 15.16. Jeremiah 15.16. Your words were found, and I ate them. You could also write down Ezekiel 3.3. Ezekiel 3.3. Job 23.12. Psalm 119.103. Psalm 119.103. And then what may be Jesus' favorite, Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. He's feeding His, his people and he's teaching them many things. That's how he's feeding them, teaching them many things. He's giving them spiritual food. Now, the narrative then, then records him feeding them literally. Now, we'll, we'll look at this more closely here in a few minutes, but just jump down to verse 41. Verse, verse 41, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. So he feeds them spiritually, teaches them what they need now, they did not come to him initially looking for food. John, John records they come to him again later looking for food. They've come to him just with needs. They, they're, they're, they're sheep without a shepherd. They've come to him for everything. He's fed them spiritually. Then he feeds them literal food. Now, Mark is multitasking here. He's, he, he is showing Jesus feeding them literal food, but he is also forecasting a far more significant meal that happens later. So those verbs in verse 41, the verbs took, bless, broke, gave. I'll say those again. You think forward in the storyline. Took, bless, broke, gave. Those are the same verbs and in the same order that are used to describe Jesus instituting the new covenant in chapter 14. And in chapter 14, what's the significance there? Jesus is handing them this bread. That bread represents His broken body. 
By, by using the same verbs and in the same order, Mark intends for us to draw a connection between what he's doing here. Yeah, he's feeding them spiritually, but, but he, is, he is hinting at what happens later, which is that Jesus, Jesus feeds us with Himself. Now, we, we, we may, as, as we're looking at Mark, we may think, well, that's a really tenuous connection, Pastor Greg. Well, Jesus Himself makes that connection in John chapter 6. He connects the feeding of the 5,000 with the Lord's Supper. He, he, he takes the, Lord, the, the, the feeding of the 5,000 and then draws from that. Look, unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, you have no life in yourself. Jesus, as Yahweh, the good shepherd, He feeds His people not only by giving them literal food and not just by teaching them spiritual food, but by giving up His own life for them. Take, eat. This is my body. And if you, if you do that, If you are joined to me in faith, you will have my life in you. This this whole thing, when read in the context of of all of Mark, it is a lesson about Jesus' identity. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the good shepherd. He feeds His people. He is everything that a sheep without a shepherd needs. He's, he's everything that the lost person needs. Every person outside of Christ, they, they've got that thing happening in them. And though they, they, they wouldn't put the words on it, every person feels that lostness. The Bible, would, the Bible would label that sheep, no shepherd. Now the disciples, they're not quite picking up on the point that's being made by all of this, that, that, that Jesus is Yahweh. Because they come to Him in verse 35. Verse 35, and they say to him, this is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, th- th- think about the, the components of the scene here. We have a desolate place or wilderness is, the, is, the, is a more literal way to translate it. We have a wilderness, hungry people, and Yahweh. Wilderness, hungry people, Yahweh. Seems like there's a script for this, right? We, we, we might expect something to happen here. The disciples, they get the wilderness and hungry people part. They're missing the Yahweh part. They're not seeing this situation from the perspective of Jesus' identity as Yahweh, the Good Shepherd. And that, that, that may be striking to us because they have just been on these missionary journeys where Jesus made them intentionally go with very, very little earthly resources so that they could get a taste of unlimited divine resources. And so even though they've just come back from these missionary journeys, they're still defaulting toward the need for earthly resources. And those of us who are, who are a little more on the self-aware side, we're not going to throw stones at them, are we? Because we do the same thing, Right? We can come right off of an amazing provision of the Lord and then we come up on a situation where we need another amazing provision of the Lord and we start instantly thinking in terms of earthly resources. That is a failure to appreciate Jesus' identity. If Jesus is Yahweh, the Yahweh who reigned manna in the wilderness for 40 years, we don't have a food problem. There's, there's never a food problem. And that confidence in the disciples, that confidence in us, 
should come not just from the fact that Jesus is incredibly powerful, but that confidence should come from the fact that Jesus is who He is. He's Yahweh. The disciples, like so many of us, they're focused on the need and its earthly resource component that Jesus' identity, it's almost a non-factor. So they, they go to Yahweh in human flesh and suggest that He send hungry people to Kroger. And we, we, we tend to think the same way. Now, what happens next is where we really start to get a sense of, 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 of how Jesus' identity informs our calling as disciples. Because look, look at verse 37. He answered them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Now, now given that this whole scene is demonstrating that Jesus is Yahweh, we might expect the Lord to have responded with, with something like, send them away. Don't insult me. I got this. But, but he does something very unexpected. You give them something to eat. And, and that leads us to a, a second truth to glean from the narrative, and that is that as his disciple, I am his hands and feet. As his disciple, I am his hands and feet. Jesus is Yahweh, the good shepherd. is his disciple, I'm his hands and feet. Now, we'll come back in a moment to the disciples' response to Jesus' command. But I just want to consider with you that Jesus actually did want them to do this. He actually wanted them to feed the people. I don't believe that he's setting them up. It, it, it is not like he's, he's saying, you give them something to eat. And, and, and they respond, we can't. And he's, he's thinking, well, yeah, I know. I just wanted to hear you say it. I mean, he's, he's not just setting them up. And the, the reason I would say that is that does not fit Jesus' character. It also doesn't fit the context. I mean, the, the, the best way to understand this is not that they can't do it, and so Jesus does it for them, but Jesus shows them how to do it. They do it with Him as His hands and feet. Because if you read this text closely, they do feed the people. And Jesus does feed the people. They are his hands and feet. He, he, he finds out from them how much food they have. Five loaves, two fish. Notice in verse 39, he commands the people to sit down in groups on the green grass so we have more contact, more contact with Old Testament texts. This is more literally, he commanded them to lie down in green grass. How many times there back in verse in, in Ezekiel 34 did he say, I will make them lie down? That's what, that's what Jesus is doing here. I will make them lie down. In Psalm 23, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Just if, if you read Mark really closely, the fact that Mark said that this is green grass, that is uncharacteristic detail for Mark. He, he doesn't just throw in green like that. He's the guy that's saving words. He wants us to think back. Jesus is the shepherd. He's making, he's making the sheep lie down in green pastures. So Jesus takes that food, says a blessing, breaks it, and, and the next verb is more literally, he kept giving it to the disciples. Kept giving it to the disciples. The, the idea is that, that the disciples were taking the food from Jesus, walking it to the folks, coming back to Jesus to reload, and then taking it to the next group of people. 
walking back to Jesus to reload. I mean, if, you do the, if you do the math on this, it's a ton of work that, that must have taken a long time. Verse 44, remember, tells us that there were 5,000 men, implying 5,000 men not including women and children. So we, 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 just, we don't know exactly how many people there were. If we want to be super conservative and say that, there was, that there's maybe a, one woman and one child for every man, and, and then so conservatively say there were 10,000 people there. I think that's ridiculously conservative. But we'll say there's 10,000. Then that means that each of the 12 disciples served close to 900 people this way. 900 people walking, going to Jesus, get, getting food, walking to that group of people and serving them. Walking back to Jesus, getting more food, walking to the next group of people. These people, they're, again, they're sitting in groups of 50 and 100. So, so each group is further away than the last. I mean, it, w- it would have been hard work, a lot of work. They were Jesus' hands and feet. The disciples did feed these people. Now, obviously, this is the nature of discipleship as a whole. We are His hands and feet. I mean, this, this is why the, the, the apostles refer to the church as the body of Christ. When it comes to feeding people the spiritual food, which is Christ Himself, we are the hands and feet that bring that food to them, whether that is the lost outside the church or to other believers inside the church. We are His hands and feet. As I mentioned at the beginning of the message, one extreme in a ministry in the body of Christ, one extreme is to be so overwhelmed by what Jesus asks of us is that we believe there's just no way we can do it. And so we don't. But that's, that's what makes this next truth such good news and such a relief. It's the, th- the third truth that we'll, we'll glean from the text, and that is that Jesus does not call me to do what I can do. He calls me to do what He can do. Jesus doesn't call me to do what I can do but what He can do. When Jesus says to the disciples in verse 37, you give them something to eat, they receive that command completely from the perspective of their own ability and limited earthly resources. That they fail to receive that command from the perspective of His identity. I mean, He's Yahweh. He's the Good Shepherd. He feeds His people and they fail to remember that he just earlier in chapter 6, he's just shared with them his power and his work. I mean, they're, they're thinking purely of their own earthly limitations. And so, in verse 37, they, they, they say, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? 200 denarii, that was roughly equivalent to about eight months' wages for, for an average laborer. And if, we, if we've got our... Old Testament noggin on still, that, that may remind us of Numbers 11. Numbers chapter 11, if you, if you want to read it later, you can. Numbers 11, we've got a very similar situation. The people are hungry, but they're grumbling about it. They want meat. They miss the meat from, from Egypt. And Yahweh, Yahweh says, oh, you'll eat meat. You, you'll have plenty of meat. It'll be coming out your nose here in a month. And Moses hears the Lord say this, and he's incredulous. Basically, like, like, like the, the disciples saying, where, where, where are we going to get all this meat? 
And, and Moses says to the Lord, the people among whom I, I am number 600,000 on foot, shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together and be enough for them? That's, that's Moses' way of saying what the disciples are saying here. How on earth is this going to happen? And what, what, the, what the disciples have in common with Moses is that they've all seen Yahweh do crazy stuff. But like them, we also tend to think about what we can do and not what Jesus can do. And Jesus, his patience with them, oh man, it, it shames me. And simultaneously, it warms my heart. Because he doesn't rebuke them at all. He just shows them. So sweet and loving. He just shows them. Look, it's, it's, it's not about what you can do. It's about what I can do. Listen, when, when Jesus gives you a Jesus-sized task, he is not playing a prank on you. Don't, don't argue He's inviting you to participate in something amazing. Just, just get busy. If, if, we could, if we could catch a vision for ministry where we conceive of every task in front of us as not our doing what we can for Jesus, but our participating with Him in what He can do, it likely would transform what we are willing to, to do, and the magnitude of what we would see accomplished through us. You, you and I, likely all of us, have hard-to-reach people in our circles of influence. And because we love the gospel and we love Jesus, He's given us a burden for these people. We, we love them. We want to see them come to know the Lord. But perhaps for some of us, the totality of our effort to minister to them is to pray, Lord, please claim that person's life. Now, I'm not minimizing prayer. Yay, prayer. Okay? Not minimizing prayer. I'm saying that perhaps prayer is where we stop because in a sense, we think we can't do anything else. Because we're, we're viewing the task in terms of what we can do rather than in terms of what the Lord can do. Is it possible that as we're praying, Lord, please do something in that person's life. Is it possible that the Lord's answer to that prayer is, you give them something to eat. It's not, of course, that He intends for us to regenerate them, to give them faith. Of course, that's not it. But He simply intends for us to be the voice through which they hear the good news, the hands and feet by which they see His love for the first time. Maybe within, within the church, there's a ministry need that has been put at your feet. You didn't go looking for it, but there it is. And it seems insurmountable. And you're thinking, no way I can do this. Are we perhaps guilty of looking at these needs from the perspective perspective of our own ability and not from the perspective of His identity. When the, when the Lord calls us to do something, the most pointless reply is, I can't do that. And the, the reason that that reply is pointless is because it's so obvious and because it is so irrelevant. 
I would invite you to soak in John 15 to make sense of what I just said there. To say, I can't do what you're asking me to do to Jesus is both. It, it is meaningless because it's obvious and irrelevant. John 15, figure that out. The whole point, the whole point of Jesus asking us to do stuff is that we might participate with Him. It's not like He's tired, that He can't handle it Himself. He's inviting us to participate with Him because He loves us. And that's what I love about this story. You know that there are so many other ways Jesus could have done this without using the disciples? I mean, this is Yahweh, the one who rained bread from the sky. He's intentionally using the disciples because He wants them to be able to participate with Him in this. Which brings us to a final truth. His work through me confirms who He is to me and to those to whom I minister. His work through me confirms who He is to me and to those to whom I minister. Now, the text tells us that the people all ate. They all ate and were satisfied. Now, we, we may read right past that because in our Western society, most of us, we, we really have no idea what it's like to be truly hungry. We, we throw around the phrase all the time, oh, man, I'm starving. We ought to pop ourselves on the mouth when we say that because we, we got no clue what real hunger is. But the, the people in, in Jesus' day and Old Testament, the, these people actually knew what hunger was. And that's why we have in the prophets them depicting a day of eschatological bliss that is specifically characterized by our being filled with good things. I mean, most people had no idea what it was like to eat as much as they wanted. We know nothing of hunger. They knew nothing of satiety. They, they, they never experienced that before until that day by the Sea of Galilee. The first time they'd ever been full was, was this day with Jesus. And by feeding, by feeding the people, Jesus isn't just giving them literal food and He isn't just wearing the disciples out, but He's teaching everyone who He is. Look, I'm Yahweh. I'm the Good Shepherd. Everything that these prophets have been saying about there's one coming who's going to fill you with good things, let this meal be assigned to you. That one is here, and I'm Him. Jesus intends to teach this to the disciples and to the people through this miracle. And yet, it seems that at least in one sense, the disciples are underwhelmed by what has happened. Remember I said that, that, that on the, the other extreme of ministry is this thing where we're so underwhelmed by what the Lord has asked of us that we miss the wonder of what He's accomplishing through us. The disciples were underwhelmed. Why, why would I say that? I would say it because in the very next story, and then in one in chapter 8, so there's two stories coming up. One of them is the very next one. Jesus is going to say, He's going to do extraordinary things. He's going to say explicit things about, about His identity as Yahweh. And the disciples are going to be astonished by this. And here in chapter 6, the very next story, the text is going to explain their astonishment to us by saying, for they did not understand about the loaves. 
They, they didn't understand about the loves. They didn't understand what was being taught to them through this scene. They didn't understand what this event said about Jesus' identity and what His identity meant for their lives. They weren't considering what these things meant. In, in, in other words, for the disciples, it, it appears as the, the narrative continues, this feeding of the 5,000, it was just another cool miracle. And perhaps if they had, if they had been asking the right questions, just, just a little bit of reflection would have gone a long way. For example, if they had been asking the right questions, you know, every time they go back to Jesus, there's food waiting for them. They've been thinking about, what what does this mean? They they might have thought, well, this is just like every morning in the wilderness. Back in Numbers, there's there's always food waiting. It's, It's always there. Jesus is Yahweh. Or when they went to gather up the leftover pieces. Maybe a bit of reflection there would have prompted them to consider, oh, this is, this is, this is better than the manna in the wilderness because in the wilderness there was never manna left over the next day. we got 12 baskets full. Jesus must be bringing a better provision than the covenant of Moses. Now, surely, in the absence of that kind of reflection, the disciples were enjoying the process. I mean, they, they, they couldn't have helped but enjoy the process. Hey, this is amazing. The bread's not running out. This is the coolest thing. And, wow, this is, this is wonderful. We've got leftovers. We don't have to worry about lunch tomorrow. I mean, they, 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 they likely were enjoying the whole thing, but because they didn't have the identity of Jesus on their minds and because they weren't asking the questions, what does this say about Jesus and what does this mean for me as a disciple, then they left that hillside without the answers. He is Yahweh. He is filling us with good things. He can be trusted. And in the future when He gives us a seemingly insurmountable task, we'll not think about it in terms of our own inability, but we'll think about it in terms of His super ability to do it through us. And we need to keep in mind that as the Lord works through us to minister to others, there is, there is not just the bare task to be performed, but that the Lord desires through that work to reveal Himself. And not just to reveal Himself to those that we're ministering to, but to reveal Himself to us. So perhaps... Perhaps you are underwhelmed with what the Lord has you doing right now. And maybe you conceive of yourself as just just carrying food. Just get ministry resources from point A to point B. Maybe, Maybe you conceive of yourself as you're just filling a slot with a warm body. Just doing a task. Could it be that while you are doing what you're doing, ostensibly to to bring the power and love of Christ to others, could it be that you yourself are missing that love and power because your mind is set only on the mechanism, the how, the logistics, and not on the great and mighty shepherd whose hands and feet you are, that he's showing himself to you, and through you he's showing himself, showing himself to someone else. The disciples, they missed that whole thing early on. 
Let us not miss that. It is all about His identity. He is Yahweh. He is the Good Shepherd who feeds His people. And He desires to do that out of love for us. He desires to do that through us. We are His hands and feet. So we ought never be overwhelmed by something that He asks us to do. Nor should we be underwhelmed by something that He asks us to do. But no matter what He puts in front of us, we should have our eyes set on His identity, understanding that whatever it is, it is a doable privilege. We should receive it as an act of love from Him. Now, in the next few moments, I'm going to I'm going to pray. After I pray, we'll observe a, a moment of silence. During that time of silence, I would encourage you to, to consider before the Lord how He would have you to apply these things. Is it possible that that there is something that has overwhelmed you that ought not have overwhelmed you because you've been thinking about your own inability and not His identity? Is there something about which you have been so underwhelmed that you have missed the meaning of what you've been doing and so you too need to set your mind on the identity of the Lord and revel in the great meaning of what He has you doing? What is it for you? Consider that after I pray. Oh, Father, what a, what a patient and generous son you have. What a kind and loving father you are to give him to us. We are grateful that he allows us to work with him in the lives of others as his hands and feet. We ask, Father, that as we leave this place, we would be, we would be astonished to the point of, of worship, that, that we would be called to participate with the great I Am in His work, that we would see it as a tremendous privilege no matter what we are called to do. Father, we pray that as we serve in, in extraordinary things and seemingly meaning, menial things, that we would find ourselves is gloriously thankful to be participating with you. And we ask, Father, that, that with our minds on the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is, that, that you would do wonderful things in us and in those to whom we minister. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.